Excited to be here once more with all of you. And for those of you who have, uh, maybe before you've heard me kind of talk about how I'm from Temecula, I'm actually not from Redlands, and I grew up there, my parents moved there when I was four. And so when I went to high school, I went to this high school, it's called Great Oak High School over in Temecula. And Great Oak, it was named after the, kind of the, the sacred tree of the Pachanga and the Usenio tribes on the kind of the, the southwest side of town there. And when I went to school, I was kind of very heavily involved in lots of different things. And so, of course, I was very committed to academics. My, my two older brothers, they were just these brilliant people that I look up to. My oldest brother literally got a perfect score on the SAT. Um, he set the bar very high, so I, I, had to, I had to be very committed to kind of my academics and being on top of that, trying to kind of live into the name of my family, so to speak. And at the same time, once I finished school, I would go to cross-country practice. I was part of the cross-country team for about three, three and a half years, just one semester there, I wasn't a part of it. And it was something I deeply loved, and it was something that, that I just, I absolutely adored and got just just put myself into completely the entire time. And so during the fall, we would do cross country, and then spring and winter, we would do track, which was more just mile and two mile, whereas cross country was more of a 5K, a little over three miles. And this was just something that I absolutely loved. And then after I finished all of that, I would then get, be very involved in student venture. It was kind of the, the high school expression of the Campus Crusade for Christ. It was actually where I met my wife, Kelsey, and it was something I was very involved in. I was involved in leadership there, and so basically my day looked like 7.30 to 2.30, you know, school, academics. I tried to get kind of my homework done in the midst of the school day itself. Then 3 to 5.30, I would do cross country, and then usually 5.30 on, I would either unwind or then I would go to do student venture stuff. And eventually, I was, I was able to keep this rhythm for quite a while, but after high school, eventually something kind of happened within me. When I was about 18 or 19 years old, I suddenly started to feel just chronically fatigued all of the time. No matter what I did, I felt exhausted from day in and day out. I would sleep eight to 12 hours, still feel tired. I didn't know what was going on with me. And so eventually, I went from this rhythm of, okay, I could run miles and miles, I could do school, I could do all these different things, and then suddenly, the simplest of tasks made me feel exhausted. And so I started going to the doctors to see, hey, what's going on with me? And they did tests, and they were like, hey, everything looks completely normal. And I was like, I don't feel normal. It's, I, as a, and some people would be like, oh, well, maybe you're just aging. I'm like, well, at 19 years old? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would get it if I was like, like hitting like, like, like elderly years. But if like if I'm in like my if I'm 19, I shouldn't feel this tired. And and you know, people would be in in good re like with good intentions. They'd be like, hey, well, you're you can do it. You're young. You're full of energy. They would say these sorts of things to me. And I'd be like, I don't remotely feel full of energy. And so th this was just kind of a struggle for me for many, many years. I, di I didn't know what was going on. The doctors kept telling me everything looked fine, but I didn't feel fine. And so I tried different things that would, that would help me, different things that people recommended along the way. And surprisingly, one of two things helped me here and there. And I wouldn't say it completely alleviated the exhaustion, but there was something about these two things that were helpful for me that kind of helped me feel a little more energetic. And those two things, the first off was yoga. If I, just, I noticed the mornings that I woke up 
I did 30 minutes to an hour of yoga, I felt a little more energetic that day. I didn't feel as exhausted. I didn't feel this fatigue setting in. And then another thing was silence, which was kind of paired with the yoga. And there was one thing in particular. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of float tanks before. Um, there's something called float tanks it's, or sensory deprivation therapy. It's this little pod, and it's about 11 inches of water, but 1,000 pounds of Epsom salt. And so naturally, it's more, like more density than the, the Dead Sea. And so you can just lay in this, this float tank, and you just float effortlessly. And they, they heat it to the exact same temperature of your skin. And then if you feel comfortable, you can turn off the lights and close the lid. And it, it cancel, essentially cancels out sound, sight, feeling of touch. And just all of your senses are kind of just neutralized for an hour to an hour and a half. And I noticed whenever I did this, for several days, I felt essentially like I did in high school. I felt energetic again. I didn't feel exhausted. And so this was something that was just amazing to me. And so this is something I began to do. I tried to just religiously do yoga every single morning. I tried to just every, every several days or once a week, I would try to float. And so I began to feel more energetic. I began to go just go through my, my life as usual, do Bible college, seminary, began pastoral work at the, the church I was a part of back in Temecula. And while I was a part of this church, we did this, this special needs camp. And the special needs camp was called Johnny and Friends. And once a year, they do this camp. It's this retreat for families. And they get to all come, and they get to come with their kids. And the, the, fa- the parents get different, different times for themselves. The, 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 the kids get different activities themselves. And it's this, whole, this very holistic retreat for families. And so it's something that I just fell in love with. And I began to get very involved in special needs ministry, so much so that my wife and I, we, we did the Johnny and Friends. They have this disability ministry certificate program called Beyond Suffering. And as I was going through the program, I know there was the one particular unit where it starts to kind of detail different disabilities and help you understand, understand kind of the signs and symptoms and just, just what people experience in these situations. And there was this one page in particular, and I kind of paused and I was looking at and I didn't want to like self-diagnose myself because we, we've all interacted with people who have self-diagnosed themselves with different things. But, but I was looking at this and going, this sounds like me. And it was, it was Asperger's syndrome. Inappropriate or minimal social interactions. My first words as a child, and I, well, first, I said like mom, dad, that sort of stuff. But my first sentence ever was, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm not even joking. And then my first day of kindergarten, I actually tried to escape. I got pretty far. I, I, did not, I did not want to be in these settings where I was kind of forced into different social interactions. And then not understanding while well, or having less facial expressions than others, this is something where just naturally I'm not as animated, um, something that I've grown in, but it's not typically. Not using or understanding nonverbal communications as gestures, body language, facial expressions, kind of same deal, intense obsession with one or two specific narrow subjects, theology. <laughs> I've, I've just become obsessed with theology over the past 14 years, and honestly, that's kind of just what I, I, I constantly think about it. Even when I've, when I've done different jobs like baking, I will literally just be baking and thinking about theology. <laughs> and so that's just something that I've just, I've, my mind has just been obsessed with it for so, so long. Clumsy, uncoordinated, especially when it comes to things like handwriting. Um, I still can't use scissors that well. 
I, <laughs> even as a 29-year-old guy now, I still struggle to th just use base things like, like scissors. Memorize preferred information and facts easily. Once again, theology. <laughs> Becoming upset or frustrated with changes in routine. This was ultimately what set me into chronic fatigue um, when I went to just engage with professionals. I had this routine when I was in high school, 7.30 to 2.30, school, 3 to 5.30, cross country, <laughs> 5.30 on, either go home or go to student venture. And it was when that changed that something just clicked within me and my, my body just essentially kind of shut down. And then hypersensitivity to lights, sounds, and textures. So in addition to changing my routine, I was working and interning at a mega church which if you've ever been in a megachurch setting, they like their lights and sounds a lot. <laughs> so much so that it was something that I just became very overstimulated by. I would often have to step out during worship. And so eventually, what happened, I, just, I looked at this description and I went, this sounds like me. And I talked to my wife about it. My wife's a doctor of occupational therapy. And she said, yeah, I mean, that might be something to look into and ultimately, when I sat down with several professionals, it came back that the reason I was struggling with chronic fatigue is I was having what is called autism or autistic burnout. That essentially, people with autism sometimes feel the need to do what's called masking. That there's this way that, that, that we perceive that, hey, this is how everyone else acts. This is how we're supposed to act in society. And so this is, these are the things that I should put on. These are the things that I should do. And, and pretend to be, and so I, I felt this need to be super animated. I felt this need to kind of to, to, to keep going and working and doing all these different things, and eventually I just felt exhausted. And so actually, and so this has been something that has been kind of a process of recovery for me to kind of go through this process of just engaging in sensory detox. So floating helped me because of that, of resting, of spending time unmasking, and kind of learning that, hey, I don't have to do all of these things that I've been told I'm supposed to do. And so people who actually haven't seen me in about 15 years since high school, they're actually usually a little bit surprised because I was a lot more animated in high school. Um, and yet I've kind of just learned to just be a little more, just, just not, not as expressive, to not kind of push myself as much to, and exhaust myself in that way. And so all of this to say that this has been, been something that I've just become has just become a part of me as I've learned this about myself. But also, naturally, just being a theologian, this has been something where when I engage with theology, I really read it through the lens of something that's called disability theology. It's this theology of disability, and it's really read through the lens of what's called liberation theology. It's a very common uh, lens for a lot of theologians within uh, progressive spheres. And really, it goes to the heart of Luke chapter 4, where Jesus says that he came to liberate the oppressed when he summarizes the gospel. And so what liberation theology does is it really seeks to go, okay, how, how can we read the entirety of the biblical text through a lens of liberation? Because that's what the gospel is about. And ultimately, then, there's these sub-disciplines within liberation theology of, okay, well, what does it mean for the gospel to liberate people with disabilities? And so that's disability theology. Or there's queer theology, which is what does it mean for, for us, to, for the gospel to liberate people who are queer folks? Or there's womanist theology. What does the gospel look like? How does it liberate 
African-American women. And so there's all these different lenses of it. There's these different subdisciplines. And so today, we're going to be talking about disability theology because the particular text today in John chapter 9, it interacts with someone with a disability, this man born blind. And as we look at this text, we're going to really deconstruct it and reconstruct it a little bit through the lens of disability theology. So let's jump right in. So it says this, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this question, it's a very central question within kind of the, the, the sub-discipline of disability theology of who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And this is a very common question that people ask. They look at these things that, are, that they perceive as wrong in the world, and they say, what is the cause of this? And many times in modern circles, and I would say just across the board in church, we kind of look at this as a primitive question in many ways. Like, oh, how could the disciples think that this man was born blind because of sin? But if you really press a lot of Christians... They believe that a lot of things wrong in the world are because of Adam and Eve, of this thing long ago when Adam and Eve took from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that's what has caused all of the suffering, all of the sin, all of these things that are wrong in the world. It's called the fall in many reformed circles. And so many Christians really have this narrative that well, the man was born blind because Adam and Eve sinned a long time ago in the Garden of Eden. And we, we would have to be pressed on that to kind of draw that out, but that's really what the narrative kind of becomes. That, yeah, it wasn't necessarily the man himself, it wasn't his parents, but it was Adam and Eve a long, long time ago. Yet Jesus, I think, kind of pushes back against this narrative because he goes on to say that neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I want to kind of flip this on its head a little bit because same deal, there's, there's a lens in which this is commonly interpreted. This is typically interpreted to mean that the man was born blind so that Jesus could put God's work on display by healing him. That that's essentially kind of what this whole passage is about. And oftentimes within liberation theology, the question becomes, okay, well, what is the, what is the fruit of that sort of teaching? If, if you were to follow some of these teachings to their logical conclusion, what does that look like in action in the world? Because depending on how we interpret a text like this, the narrative can easily become that kind of the, the, the reason people with disabilities exist is just to make others feel good for helping them. That like, hey, like we're, we're just going to provide this service. We're going to help people with disabilities. That just like Jesus you know, came in and God's work was put on display by healing this person who was born blind, we now are doing God's work by helping these people who are, so, who are experiencing these disabilities. And that could ultimately become this very savior, this very messianic complex that lots of Christians tend to have in the world when they go out and do different, do different acts. And so I want to pose kind of a different question of approaching this. Of what if by this man was born blind to put on display the work of God? What if the, the, quest, what if the reality is more of that? What if people in their diversity are actually the work of God themselves? 
that actually in our different abilities, in, in our neurodiversity, this is actually putting on display more and more the, the diversity of God's creation. And that is ultimately what disability theology is trying to explore and get us to consider. Dr. Amy Kenny, this, this scholar and activist, and she herself has cerebral palsy, she talks about this idea when it comes to Jesus' ministry. That yes, Jesus' ministry, he often was going around and healing people, but she, dif- she makes a differentiation. She says that Jesus' ministry, it's not all about a physical cure, but about holistic healing. Amen. Which might sound like semantics, but this is kind of a common idea within the, the, the realm of disability theology, of really differentiating between a physical cure and holistic healing. And what a physical cure would be is, is it's the actual removal of the disability or ailment. And so this is often kind of gone to because of the reality that some different disabilities can cause different levels of suffering. But what many theologians within this realm are really acknowledging is that, well, sometimes the suffering isn't necessarily just physical suffering. Sometimes the suffering is the barriers that are created within society that someone who's in a wheelchair might not be able to access some of the same spaces and thus be isolated. That someone who's born blind might not be able to engage with some of the different activities as someone who is seeing. And so what holistic healing is really the upheaving of social structures and stigmas that result in this kind of the removal of ableism. And, And ultimately, it's the full equity and inclusion for people with disabilities. That is holistic healing. And so what Jesus often does is actually, yes, he's engaging in the physical cure aspect, but ultimately he's doing this so that holistic healing can come about. This is why when Jesus heals someone of leprosy, he says, go to the priest. Because in order to go to the priest, when they went to the priest, that would then restore their place in society. They could then return to the temple from there, whereas they were currently excluded from the temple. Or when, some, when the, the man who was paralyzed gets lowered to Jesus, the first thing he says to him is, your sins are forgiven. Because this man and the people around him would have had this narrative that you are paralyzed because you are sinful. And so Jesus goes right to that social stigma and says, no, 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 your sins are forgiven. And so your, your place in society, whether or not you are paralyzed, is restored. And so ultimately what Dr. Amy Kenny goes on to say is that maybe we need to be freed not from disability, but from the notion that it limits my ability to showcase God's radiance to the church. So what we need to be freed from is ableism. And ableism, if, if you're unfamiliar with the term, ableism just essentially means just discrimination, prejudice against people with disabilities. And so oftentimes, if someone refers to someone who's not aware of a situation, they say, well, that person's blind to it, or they're paralyzed in fear. There's lots of these different ableistic phrases and terms that are just, that are just steeped into our, just, how, just how we speak about things, as well as there's just a reality of, of ableism and just how we engage with people. So for example, many people who are in, in wheelchairs or just have different uh, communication disabilities, they, they speak about how people almost engage with them as if, they're less intelligent because of that. That if someone is being pushed in a wheelchair by a friend or a family member, 
that people will typically speak to the person who is pushing the wheelchair rather than the person who's in the wheelchair. This is all, these are all examples of ableism. And so Jesus engages with all of this. And the text goes on when it talks about healing. It says, after saying all of this, Jesus spat on the ground and he made some mud of his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes, which is a very strange, very strange thing. Sometimes Jesus just heals people and then in this particular scenario, it, he straight up spits in mud and then puts it on someone's face. Um, a pastor at a mega church recently physically showed this on stage where he spat and rubbed it on someone's face. It, it went viral very quickly because, <laughs> because we all acknowledge how strange it is that, some, that, that someone would do that. In this case, Jesus does that. And he tells him, go, wash in the pool of Salaam. And so the man went and washed and he came home seeing. And once again, this is one of those there's those texts where depending on how you interpret it, it could lead to different things. And so I encourage us to, to read this slightly metaphorically here, that this holistic healing of the world, it's not a nice and neat task. It's a messy process. Amen. It's not something where just, just you, you do one act and things change. And I think that's what many people are expecting when they engage with healing ministries. Oftentimes, healing ministries is, meant, is thought of to just be kind of this, you just pray for something, and you just pray for something to change in an instant. And that's understandable that that conclusion would be arrived at, because you look at the scriptures, and oftentimes this is what healing is. But holistic healing to change stigmas, to change social structures, this is a messy, lengthy process. And so I would just ask, how can paradox participate in this messy process of holistic healing? There was this study that was done, and they really kind of identified five characteristics of inclusive churches, particularly inclusive churches when it comes to including people with disabilities. The first of which was to really feature faith leaders who are committed to inclusion across the board. So to have faith leaders who have made it a personal commitment of how do, we, how do we include people with disabilities? How do we create more inclusion and accessibility? Or perhaps even faith leaders who themselves have disabilities. And then to use educational resources to address disability-related issues. Because let's be honest, in any time something new is engaged with in terms of inclusion, there is a lot of different languages, a lot of different terms, there's a lot of different things to just be aware of. And so to have access to resources People, things that people have created that really help us in this journey is huge. And then to portray people with disabilities positively in their religious teachings. Like I said, ableism is something that is very common in society, but also very common within church circles. In fact, historically speaking, when different ADA laws, accessibility laws, came into, came into play, a lot of churches, because frankly, I don't think they wanted to spend the money to redo their building and things like that, a lot of churches pushed against this and tried to claim religious freedom in meeting ADA laws. And you can imagine how that, was, how that is perceived and received when a church refuses to create accessible spaces. And ultimately, with this, 
to, for churches then to have stronger ties to disability organizations, to really think through, okay, how can we look at organizations that are doing amazing work already, that are already familiar and engaged with this, with this act of inclusion and accessibility, and how can we have strong ties to those organizations? And then number five, to have a stronger orientation toward promoting social justice. And so I just, I'm just gonna kind of take these all piece by pieces as we start wrapping up here. So the first is just to just have inclusion committed faith leaders. And I hope that here at Paradox that, that you feel that, that this is something that we're already very committed to here at Paradox, that, that Craig and the leaders, the, the, the elders here are committed to creating an inclusive space. And so this is something that, that wonderfully that you already have here at Paradox. And then with disability related resources, if I, if I could just leave you with one rather than giving you like a ton and overwhelm you, there's one particular book that I've read that I think does a great job of just really comprehensively and, ex and accessibly moving through all of these, which is demystifying disability. And, the, and that's exactly what they do. They really demystify this. They, they really go into the terms. They, get, they, they make it accessible. It's something that's very helpful. And so if I could recommend one resource to you, it would be to potentially start there. And then ultimately with positive portrayal, this is something that in just a moment we're going to do the alternate reading um, in the, the Lent text. And you're going to kind of see what I, what I hope would be a really positive portrayal of these things. And so those of you who are doing the Lent reading, you're welcome to come on up in just, in just a moment. And then disability organizations. There's one organization in particular that certifies different facilities, different places, different organizations to be certified autism centers or certified disability centers. Um, as far as I know, I actually contacted them, there's, there's only one church in the entire nation that is a certified autism center. And so this is something that's, that in terms of going through the process, in terms of just engaging with this, this, things like this would be just wonderful realities to just think through going forward of, of how can we con connect with these different organizations that have certifications, that have these processes, and to, and to really engage with this. And then lastly, social justice. As, as Craig and the leaders of Paradox have gone through this, this nine-year sermon series, and now this three-year series of going through Lent, I hope that time and time again you see this commitment to social justice, Amen. this commitment to reading the text through a lens of justice. Because as Amos says, that, that this is the ultimate expression of this, that that the prophets often talk about this river of justice, of wanting to see that over all else. And through all of this, you'll be engaged with this process of holistic healing. And so remember that this healing of the world is not a nice and neat task, but it's a messy process. That's why we see in the text, Jesus rubbed mud with saliva on someone's face. It's, it's to, I think it's to show us that, hey, this, is a, this can be a messy process. So that, my friends, is disability theology. And so as we wrap up, and as in just a moment, as, as you listen to this alternative reading of the text, this positive portrayal of people with disabilities, may you participate in the holistic healing of the world by seeking to dispel ableistic narratives. And may you seek to cultivate more accessibility, inclusion, and empowerment for people with disabilities. Amen.